For the rest of us now, let's open our Bibles to the book of James, chapter 1. So we are continuing our study of this wonderful letter the Lord has given to us through our brother James. James, the brother of Christ. We are picking up where we left off last week, which has us ready for verse number 9. So once again, as you are able, let's stand together in honor of the word of the Lord. And hear now the word of the Lord. In the book of James, chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living word. Lord, your supernatural, inerrant, perfect, and pure word that you have given to us by your spirit that we receive and we understand by that same spirit. Lord, this word which is powerful in its working to to bring to life that which was dead, to give sight to blind eyes, to transform your people into the likeness of our Savior. And we pray, God, that you would accomplish all of your good purposes in us and among us by your word, through your spirit. We pray, God, that you would give us receptive ears and open hearts. We pray, Lord, that we would be quick to obey as your spirit brings conviction of sin and points us to righteousness, that we would be encouraged in our faith. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. One of the most convicting, remarkable prayers in the Bible is found in the book of Proverbs. It's the only prayer in the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 30, in what is called the words of Agur, in verses 7 through 9 of of Proverbs chapter 30, we see this prayer. And in it, the man of God makes two requests of God. He says this, two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. This this prayer makes two requests, and the second one is, is shocking. The first request is, keep me far from falsehood and lying. I think we would all say, yes, that's a prayer we should all pray. It's the second prayer, though, that's more challenging. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Now, we would certainly pray the first part of that prayer. He says, give me neither poverty nor riches. This man asks the Lord for neither one, not poverty, not riches. His prayer is, Lord, simply give me enough. He says here, feed me with the food that is needful for me. Just just what I need. Not less than what I need, but don't give me more than what I need. Just what is needed. And he gives us the reasons for that prayer. Why do I not 
want poverty and why do I not want riches? He says, if he becomes rich, he may deny the Lord. He, he says, he may say, who is the Lord? In, in other words, that he fears were he to become a wealthy man that he might think he no longer needs God. He might think he can depend on himself alone with, 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 and, and his wealth. With all of the comfort and security that wealth brings with it. He might think, I don't need God anymore. On the other hand, if he becomes poor, he might steal and profane the name of the Lord his God. In other words, he fears, if I'm a poor man, I might be tempted to steal. And if I steal, it's going to look like the God that I worship isn't worth trusting. It's not worth trusting God. I've got to steal and I've got to take care of myself because God's not faithful to supply all of my needs. And so the extremes of wealth and poverty, he sees both of them as dangerous to his faith in God. And so he prays, don't give me either one of them. Just give me enough. And that is a perspective that very few have. That, that is a prayer that very few will pray. We'll pray the first part of it. But to pray that whole prayer, there's wisdom in this prayer. There is real danger, but both in poverty and in wealth, both of them pose a danger to our soul. To be poor can be a danger to your soul. To be rich is dangerous to your soul. Both wealth and poverty then are trials. Trials that will test our faith. It's a trial to have nothing, is it not? It's also a trial to have it all. It's also a trial to have a surplus. It's a trial to be exalted because of what you have, and it's a trial to be laid low because of what you don't. Our faith is tempted, tested by both of these trials, the trial of poverty and the trial of wealth. So how do we endure these trials? That's what James has been talking to us about as we have started this letter. He's been talking about the trials that come into our life and how to face them like Christians. How to endure them like Christians. And now he brings a couple specific trials to our mind. The trials of poverty and the trials of wealth. And he tells us how it is that we're to endure these trials as Christians. He teaches us. How to endure the trials of wealth and poverty with wisdom. The same wisdom that he called on us last, last week in our passage to call on God for. Look at these verses again. Verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat, withers the grass, and the flower falls and its beauty perishes. So will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Again, we can't just lift these three verses out of their context and, and deal with them on their own. This, these verses are part of a larger teaching of James, of how Christians are to endure trials. It, it begins in verse 2. When James calls us, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. The section ends in verse 12 with an encouragement that blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trials. That, that word trial is a bookend for us. In verse 2 and in verse 12, that kind of bookending is common to this 
ancient writing. It's called an inclusio. It's a bookending. It's a bracketing. It's highlighting an important theme for us. And it really doesn't matter that we remember the word inclusio. We won't be having a quiz on that later or anything. But it is important that we know what it's doing. It is important that we understand how it functions, what it does, that, that all of these verses are connected together by one single theme. That's what those brackets do for us. This is all a piece together. The theme is this, how Christians ought to endure trials. And so in these verses, James wants us to understand that the two of these trials of various kinds that we're going to meet and that, that are going to fall upon us in this life that the Christian may face are poverty and wealth. And just as he said earlier in this passage, if, as he says in verse 12, if we endure these trials with steadfastness, we'll receive a blessing from God. And so this teaching on poverty and wealth and how we approach them, how we endure these trials, has with it great promise of blessing from God, whichever of the trials we're facing. So we'll look closely at these two trials as James lays them out for us and how he tells us we ought to endure each of them. First is the trial of poverty. Verse 9, he says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. So the first Christian that James addresses here is the lowly brother. Lowly, this word lowly in its most literal sense is describing things that are low-lying, like physically low-lying, things like valleys and river basins, things that are physically, literally low-lying. So it's often, though, used in a figurative sense, and that's how James is using it here. It's describing someone whose social status is low-lying. They're low. It's describing those who are poor. Those who are poor and because of that poverty have low social status. They are low-lying in comparison with with the other people around them in their social rank. And in what seems like a paradox here that James gives us in this passage, James says this, the lowly brother is actually not low at all. He, He is exalted. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Exaltation literally means a high place, a high position. So he says, let the one who is in a low place boast in the fact that he's in a high place. Well, that doesn't make a lot of sense if we're just looking at it on its face. The the lowly brother is in fact in a high and lofty and exalted place. How is that? Well, there's one key word here that tells us how it is. James calls him the lowly what? The lowly brother. He's exalted because he's a brother. That's why. Brother is James's favorite word for Christian. For, for a fellow Christian. He'll, he'll, he'll use that, that word brother some 19 times in this letter to describe Christians. It really marks out all the sections of the letter of James. This, this designation, brother. Believers are all brothers because we've been adopted into God's family. And, and, and when the Bible uses the word brother and people try to do this, they try to, we get all freaked out that it, that it is gender specific and we go, that's going to make the ladies feel bad. We don't need to do that. Brother, it's great. Ladies, it's great to be called a brother by James here. 
Men, it's great to be called the bride of Christ as well. We don't have to freak out over this stuff. Brother is this 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 close, connected, loving designation that James used. Believers are all brothers. We have been adopted together into God's family. We have the same father in heaven. And so we are all brothers. And in that brotherhood, James wants us to know there is great privilege. There are great privileges to being a part of this specific family. We are part of the family of God. And so we are exalted Regardless of our economic status, regardless of our social status, we who are in Christ have been given great spiritual blessings. This is a repeat theme in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. As Christians, we are rich. In the truest sense of that word, we, we are rich with spiritual blessings that God has given to us in Christ. We have been chosen and adopted by the Father. We have been redeemed by the Son, our sins forgiven by Him. We have been given the Holy Spirit of God to indwell us and to guide us and to empower us for service. Christian, just think about what that means. All three persons of the triune Godhead have conspired together to bless you. Well, what better news is there than that? What could be more mind-blowing than that truth? These are the blessings we've received just in salvation. Just in, in our redemption. But there are greater blessings still to come that we're not even experiencing yet. One day we will see God face to face. That's the point of of heaven. The glory of the new heavens and the new earth is that we will be with God. We will live with him forever. We will know him fully, even as we're fully known. One day there will be no no more sin. Oh, what a day that will be. There will be no more effects of sin. No more sickness and pain and death. No more depression No more anxiety, no more regret, no more sorrow, no more loss. The list could go on and on and on. One day we will experience the fullness of peace with God. We will have ever-increasing joy, everlasting happiness. We will come into full possession of what John Newton called solid joys and lasting pleasure. that's That's what will be ours. And so as God's children, we have an unimaginable inheritance that awaits us. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 17, we're heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, You've been grieved by various trials. It's exactly what James is, 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 is calling us to see. Calling us to understand. Though we are grieved by various trials at the present time, we have such a hope that awaits us. We have such solid promises. 
There are such solid joys and lasting treasures that that are, are ours and await us that we can endure these trials, not only patiently, but joyfully. All Christians are abounding with the riches of God's spiritual blessings, no matter what our station in life might be. And so James says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. John MacArthur summarized well in his commentary, the lowly brother's blessings. He says, he may be hungry, but he has the bread of life. He may be thirsty, but he has the water of life. He may be poor, but he has eternal riches. He may be cast aside by men, but he has been eternally received by God. He may have no home on earth, but he has a glorious abode in heaven. When God in his wisdom and sovereignty takes away the physical possessions from some of his children, it is for the purpose of making them spiritually mature, a blessing infinitely more valuable than anything they have lost or have wanted but never possessed. The believer who is deprived in this life can accept that temporary and insignificant deprivation because he has a future divine inheritance that is both eternal and secure. That, that absolutely sums up what James is, is telling us in that one little phrase. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Even the poor believer is rich. Even the poor believer, the lowly one, is highly exalted in the spiritual realm. And that's why the lowly brother, James says, must boast in his exaltation. What does it mean to boast? It tends to have a negative connotation in our mind when we hear some, someone boasting. Helps us to know this word can be either positive or negative. It just depends on the context. In the negative sense, we all know this. Boasting is sinful. It's a product of pride. It's a product of self-exaltation. Later in the book of James, in James chapter 4, verse 16, he's going to, say, he's going to use this word in its negative sinful context. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So there's a kind of boasting that's evil. But in a positive sense, boasting is both right and necessary. Galatians chapter 6 verse 14, Paul says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So Paul says, I'm not going to boast in that selfish, self-serving way, but there is something I will boast in, the cross of Christ. God himself says we must boast. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might, nor the rich man boast in his riches. Okay, so the the negative use of the word boast, the sinful, self-serving, self-exalting, prideful, sinful boasting. He says though, but let him who boasts, boast in this that he understands and knows me, that I'm the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Boasting in knowing God, boasting in who God is and what he has done, boasting in what God has done, is doing, will do. Boasting in God's steadfast love and justice and righteousness is something that pleases God. 
is something that we're actually commanded to do. Boasting in the fact that God grants spiritual blessings to his people is a good and worthy and right thing to do. Again, that's exactly what James is saying. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. So when is it wrong to boast? Well, it depends on what we're boasting in. That's the answer. It depends on what it is that we're boasting is that tells us if the boasting is right or wrong. One meaning of the word boast is simply rejoice. This same word is translated in both of those ways depending on the passage. To rejoice in something is what? It's, It's to have such joy in something that you have to talk about it. Such joy in something that it comes out of your mouth. You can't help but speak about it. Your joy overflows and out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. The same word of boasting here is translated as rejoice in several places in the New Testament. Paul says in in Romans chapter 5 verse 2, we rejoice. Same word. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. In fact, if you have an ESV translation, they have a margin note there on that verse that lists the word boast as an alternative translation. We boast in hope of the glory of God. Just a few verses later, Paul says in verse 11, we rejoice in God, same word, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That's the meaning of boast James is using here, to rejoice in something, to to place your highest joy in something such that you speak about it. That's, That's the definition James is working with here. And remember in in verse 2, James instructed us to count it all what? What were we supposed to count the the trials that we meet? Count it all joy. When you meet trials of various kinds. We must respond to trials with joy. And so when we face the trial of poverty, that's how we're supposed to respond to it. It's not, again, that, and we've said this, I think, every week since we've been studying James. The trials themselves are not good. We don't walk around saying poverty is great. We love poverty and we hope for much more of it. That's not what we're called to do. We're not, we're not excited about the trials themselves. Trials are, by their very nature, painful and hard. But we are to face trials like Christians. We're to think about trials like Christians. We must still boast. We must still exalt. We must still rejoice. We must still take joy in our spiritual exaltation, even in the midst of the most fiery of trials. And so the lowly brother must learn to boast in the spiritual blessings that the Lord has given him. He he must learn to see beyond what he doesn't have on this earth and begin to see what's been given to him in the spiritual realm. What is eternally his? What is really his? He might not have much in this life, but in reality, he's rich. In the things that can never be taken away, he's rich. In the life to come, which is eternal and not temporary like this life, he has an inheritance beyond his wildest imagination. So poverty is indeed a trial. 
A, a trial we must endure with faith, a trial we must endure with wisdom. And James tells us how to endure it. We endure it by rejoicing in our spiritual riches. Just as the poor Christian must learn to boast, so too the rich Christian must learn to boast. We see here there's not just one trial, the trial of poverty. There's another trial, and James has more to say about that one, the trial of prosperity. Verse 10, and the rich. Again, he's speaking to Christians here. The rich Christian must boast in what? His humiliation. In his humiliation. Someone who is rich is just someone who has an abundance of material wealth. It's someone who has more than he needs. After meeting all of his legitimate needs, he has a surplus. Just as poverty is a trial, so also prosperity is a trial. In fact, the word of God gives many warnings about the danger of abundance. Gives many warnings about the seeking of riches because it is a great danger to our soul. Charles Spurgeon says, there's no trial like the trial of prosperity. No trial so dangerous as, as the trial of prosperity. In Matthew chapter 19, we, we know this familiar story, this rich young man coming to Jesus and he asked Jesus, what deed must I do to have eternal life? Jesus answers him like this in Matthew 19, verse 21. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. There's no trial like the trial of prosperity. Jesus then, after this man walks away, defeated, discouraged, downcast, Unwilling, it would seem, to, to part with these possessions and follow Christ, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the king, kingdom of heaven. That's how hard it is. Some people take and, and make teach this passage and they love to give this little historical tidbit. There was a place in the wall in Jerusalem called the eye of the needle and the, the camel had to be fully unburdened. You had to unpack everything from it and then it had to get down low and shimmy its way through that hole and that was the only way it could get through was to be unburdened and we hear those things and we're like wow that's cool. It's also made up. It's not true at all. There's no eye of the needle in the wall. Camels don't crawl on their elbows Anyway, and Jesus' very next words, which we didn't read, are this. With man, it is impossible. Impossible. Jesus' point is, with man, it's impossible. So he was not using an example of a camel shimmying through a small hole in the wall because all of its burdens had been lifted from it. That wasn't in my notes. I just share that with you because I love you. And I want you to be grumpy like I am. No, what is Jesus saying? Obviously, he's not saying we earn our way into the kingdom. This rich man, oh, you've got to sell everything. You've got to get rid of it. That's the only way. You want to come into the kingdom of God? That's, this is the works you have to do 
to get there. Eternal life is not earned in any way by anything we do or we don't do. It is certainly not earned by how much we have or by how little we have. Jesus' point, though, is that the rich are so often deceived into believing they don't need God. They feel self-sufficient. They look around at their comfort and their enjoyment and the security that their wealth seems to be offering them. And it's difficult for them to turn away from that and to trust wholly in God. John Piper says, The great danger of riches is that our affections will be carried away from God to his gifts. That's what we see in the case of this rich young man. His affections were carried away from God to his gifts. That's why Paul warns us about even the desire to be rich. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9, those who desire to be rich, Paul starts out, is that one of your desires? Is it one of your desires to be rich? Well, then hear Paul's words to you. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. He didn't say they might. He didn't say they're at greater risk for. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare. For the love of money, note here, not money itself, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Note here, the desire to be rich, the love of money, that's what leads to ruin and destruction, all kinds of evil, wandering away from the faith, as Paul says. It's no wonder the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. So because riches are especially dangerous to our souls, James gives instruction to the rich believer. Because there are rich believers. He gives more instruction to the rich believer than he gives to the poor believer. He has more to say to the rich believer than he has to say to the poor believer. And here's what we need to understand as we see this from James. Virtually every single one of us in this room comes into the category in these two people of rich believer. And you might be thinking, definitely not me. You don't know what my finances look like. If you have more than you need. And what that means is this. Sometimes you're able to spend money on things that you just want. You don't need them. But sometimes... You can spend money on a thing that is not a necessity. It's not keeping the heat on. It's not keeping the light on. It's not the bare minimum amount of clothes to get by in life. It's not putting food on the table. I can go get a Whopper if I want to sometimes. If you sometimes can spend on things you want, you are in the category here in these two groups of rich believer. We Americans are, are unbelievably wealthy compared to the rest of the world. That is just a fact. C- compared uh, certainly with, with almost everyone who's lived throughout all of history. 
We are exceptionally wealthy. All of us in this room, without exception, even as inflation soars out of control, even as the RV and housing industries in our community continue to struggle, even though we may struggle to keep up with our bills at times, the reality is we're living in an extraordinary time of economic prosperity. Your income, your income most likely puts you comfortably in the top 10% of all people on the planet right now. All wage earners in the world, you're in the top 10%. That's astounding, but that's true. I would say virtually all of us in this room are in that category. Most of the people in this room are in the top 1% of the entire world. And so we may not feel rich, and we may hear these words from James and be like, those rich people do need to cool it. They do need to watch it. We just need to understand it's us and our faith is in danger because of it. As we sit in this comfortable room while it snows outside, our faith is in danger because of the comfort that we have, because of the wealth that we have. That's the reality. So what then must rich Christians like us do to endure the trials of prosperity that we find ourselves in? James tells us we must boast in our humiliation. We must boast in our humiliation. Of course, now we're blessed with the same spiritual blessings as poor Christians, right? We, We will have no less in heaven because we had more on earth. That is not what James is getting at. That is not what we should take away from that. But it's this, we must especially strive to boast in humiliation in order to endure the test of prosperity. And that's this, we need to be reminded that we don't actually deserve anything good. It's not owed to us. Wealth has a way of making us think it's owed to us. That we deserve things. After all, we worked hard for it. We earned it. It is rightfully ours, and we want what's ours. If you've ever got frustrated waiting in line at a coffee shop, if you've ever gotten frustrated at your server not moving fast enough, then you know that James's words are true, that wealth has a damaging effect on our soul if we let it, that we think we're entitled to things. Spiritually speaking, though, we don't deserve anything but wrath from God. Our our sin was so bad. Think of this. Our sin was so bad that it required the sinless son of God to come down from heaven, to take on human flesh, to die in our place in order to save us from the wrath of God, which is what we deserved, which is the paycheck we worked for and earned. We are so undeserving of his grace. We're so undeserving of all the riches he has bestowed on us. They are gifts. These spiritual blessings. This grace we've received from God, these unshakable promises, these solid joys and lasting treasures are gifts from God, but they are undeserved gifts. We were enemies of God, and yet Christ died for us. And so wealth is a trial. 
It's a trial that we must endure by rejoicing in our spiritual poverty. How does Jesus begin the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed is the man who, what? Blessed is the man who is poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The, the, the way up is down. That's how this kingdom of God works. The one who rejoices in their spiritual poverty. That is, they are poor in spirit. They come to God as a beggar, knowing as we come to him, we bring nothing to him to commend ourselves to him. We come completely throwing ourselves on his grace and his mercy, trusting in his promises and in the finished work of Christ on the cross. The one who comes to him in that way. Nothing in my hand I bring, as the great hymn says. Simply to thy cross I cling. The one who comes to him in that way is exalted. That is who is exalted. After all, who who are we? What is our wealth? James shows us that our lives are fleeting. That our earthly wealth is going to eventually come to nothing. He goes on in verse 10. Because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. The rich believer is to boast in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. Just look out the window at the beautiful fall leaves. They're not there. It's snow out there. You'll be sad if you look out the window. The, the leaves come in the fall. They are gorgeous. They're breathtaking at times. And they do not last long. And they die. And they fall from the tree. And they just become work that makes your back hurt. Dead on the ground. In the same way James says, the rich man will pass away. Just like the colorful fall leaves that are here today and gone tomorrow, so too the rich man will pass away and will be no more on this earth Expanding on that illustration, James says in verse 11 as he continues, For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. No doubt, growing up in the land of Israel, James was used to seeing the beautiful flowers of spring blooming in the Galilean and Judean hills. And he would have also seen them all die as the scorching wind and heat of summer came in to replace the cool and beautiful and temperate weather of the spring. And our lives are like those flowers. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 6, the prophet writes this, All flesh is grass. All its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. Our lives on earth are fleeting. And when the Lord blows on us, they're over. David writes in Psalm 103, verse 15, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it's gone. And its place is no more. And James says, just like the grass, just like the leaves, just like the flowers, he says in verse 11, so also the rich man Fade away in the midst of his pursuits. The the, the rich will go the way of all flesh. There's no avoiding it. They're not above it. There's no way of buying themselves out of it. They will all just fade away. 
their wealth will come to nothing. Psalm 49, verse 17, when the rich man dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. Now, James, just to be clear, he's not talking about building a legacy for future generations. The scripture commends that to us. The wise man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. That's not what James has in mind here. James has in mind this idea, and it is a simple one. The rich have no advantage whatsoever in death. All wealth on earth is meaningless when you are buried under the earth. That's what James is trying to help us see. Italian, old Italian proverb says, after the game, the king and the pawn go back, both go back in the same box. This is the reality. There's no advantages over the, from the, the, the one in poverty or the wealthiest person in death. When you are underground, none of it matters anymore. It's one of the reasons I love old cemeteries. My children had the distinct pleasure of being dragged to many, many cemeteries on our vacation travels over the year. And they would get frequent speeches from me. And some old part of it, nobody knows who any of these people are anymore. So, mate, this is what life is. They're like, you're ruining this trip for us right now. You're bringing us down. It's the truth, though. James says the rich man fades away in the midst of his pursuits. Pursuits is just his comings and goings in life. James is picturing this man still on the move, still active, still pursuing more. While he's still on the move, his life will come to an end. While he's working for more, he simply fades away. And friends, so it is with all of us. Our lives are brief. Our lives are fleeting. James will tell us in chapter 4, verse 14, What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And since our wealth will pass away and our lives are brief, we should exalt in our humiliation. We should exalt in our spiritual poverty. We deserve nothing. Christ is all. He is everything. And that is what we should exalt in. That is where our focus should lie. That should be the defining truth of our lives. This is the way to endure the trials of poverty and of wealth. We need to understand both of these truths. And, and the truth is, even though I went to great lengths to say to us, we're in the category of rich Christian, there are times where we have to heed the counsel, don't we, to the poor Christian. There are times where our experience is that of a poor Christian. We don't know how we're going to make ends meet. We need to understand what James is saying to both of these individuals. The secret to enduring the trials of poverty and wealth is the same. The secret to what Paul calls being content in every circumstance. It's the same. It comes back to this. It comes back to boasting in the Lord and what he has done. Who he is, what he has done, is doing, will do. 
rather than boasting in ourselves, rather than looking at ourselves, who we are, what we have accomplished, who we are in the eyes of men. The call for both of these individuals, for the poor brother and the rich brother, the lowly brother and the lofty brother, the call is the same. We ought to fix our eyes on Christ. We ought to fix our eyes. We ought to boast in what really matters. We ought to boast in what is eternal. We boast in our condition before the eyes of God, not before the eyes of men. And so we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded of how rich our inheritance and we need to be reminded that we didn't earn one ounce of it. That it's all of grace. So whether you find yourself identifying with the poor or the rich, whatever trial you're facing, here is wisdom for you from our brother who says to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, who tells us in the midst of trial to call on the Lord for wisdom. Here is wisdom from the Lord for your trial. Humble yourself. Humble yourself by boasting only in the riches that God has graced you with in Christ. That is how you endure these trials, but it's also how we endure trials with joy. We fix our eyes on what is ours in Christ. We turn our eyes upon Jesus. We look full in his wonderful face. The things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. There's such truth. There's such truth. And this understanding that if we will look to what God has done for us, is doing for us, will do for us, his sure promises in his word, if we hold fast to that, it puts everything else in perspective. It doesn't mean our trials aren't difficult. It doesn't mean they're not fiery, but it means they won't swallow us whole. It means that we we will trust in God in them and we will even meet them with joy, knowing that God is at work for our good, that it will produce in us steadfastness, which will produce in us maturity. We trust God in his word. And so the answer in both of these trials is the same. We look to God, to what he has done, to what he's doing. To what he will do. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for your great salvation in Christ. Thank you, Lord, that in the midst of whatever trials we're facing, we can trust in you. Lord, that if we're, if we're facing trials where, where we feel lowly, we can boast in our spiritual exaltation that you have have secured for us so great a salvation that you have such a a glorious inheritance that awaits us, that none can take from us. That a billion years from now, as we are still delighting in new ways, that your glory and might and grace and kindness to us in Christ, Lord, that these momentary trials will feel light to us. Lord, that we're reminded that this is not something that we have earned, that we have nothing with which to commend ourselves to you, that you would accept us or grant to us salvation, but this is all a work of your grace. So there's no room for boasting on our part except boasting in your sovereign goodness to us.
So we rejoice in you, and I pray, Lord, that you would set eternity before our eyes so that as we encounter the trials of this life, we would do so as as Christians. We would do so as your people. We would think about them rightly. We would face and endure them rightly. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us and make us faithful, and we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your promises that you hold us in your hand. That these trials will not defeat or conquer us. But you're at work for good, even in the midst of these things. We hold on to that promise. We rejoice in it as we rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, amen.